we as humans do a lot of things that have unintended consequences on our environment, gender real parties, and wildfires, am I right? Well, today we'll be talking about one more instance where that might be the case. So take some notes, learn a little bit, and let's get started. Welcome to Hooked on Science, a podcast where we learn about cool research that you should know about. I'm your host, Julia Cubans. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Carolyn Hutchinson, who is an assistant professor of chemistry at St. Bonaventure University. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Carolyn, you are currently in a chemistry department and your background is in chemistry. What got you interested in chemistry in the first place? So, I was always that kind of obnoxious kid who was asking why. And my mom was a little bit like, okay, stop asking why I don't have all the answers. But so she pointed me to science books. And that really got me interested in science in general. I ended up in chemistry actually a little bit by accident. I really hated chemistry in high school. I went into college intending to do kind of microbiology genetics. And then through a series of events that's pretty common for first-generation students. I fell behind in biology. I wasn't behind in chemistry, so I declared a chemistry major, and I took quantitative analysis, an analytical chemistry course, and that was the moment of realizing all those whys the answers were in chemistry, and so that's why I've stuck with it. That sounds like a a really great way to figure out what you want to pursue. A, something that you're doing better at, and B, something that's answering the questions that you have about the world. So it sounds like this interest in chemistry really started in in college. So why did you decide to pursue a graduate degree rather than just finding a, a position in chemistry right outside of getting your bachelor's degree? So I chose to pursue a graduate degree partially because I hadn't been aware that it was an option when I started college, which sounds a little bit funny to say, but again, I'm really a first generation student. So I don't have a lot of people in my family with any sort of college degree. My dad's whole side of the family never had college degrees. And so it was a little bit of you go to college and things work out from there. And so at the beginning of my senior year, several of my professors approached me and are like, we noticed you haven't looked at graduate programs, we think you'd really blossom in them. You'd do really well in them. Is there a reason you haven't looked? And so when I started looking, that was a moment of like, oh, I can keep doing what I really like and delve into it a little bit more. So that's how I ended up in graduate school. I actually didn't think I was going to want to teach when I went into graduate school. I thought I was going to want to end up in the industry. I kind of learned about teaching in graduate school. Sure, sure. And it must have been encouraging to have those faculty members, your professors approach you and, you know, encourage you to apply to graduate school. It really was good. I cannot, I thank them and I cannot thank them enough for putting me on this path that turned out to be really what I wanted to do. No, that's, that's so awesome. And you, you just mentioned that you are a first generation college student and we haven't talked a lot about personal identity is unhooked on science, but it's something that is really important to consider, especially in academics and in the sciences. And you also shared with me that you are non-binary and queer. 
Has that affected your academic experience at all? So I've really been chewing on this one for the weekend because for me, like being queer and non-binary is just part of who I am. And it's really hard to separate that from my academic journey, but it's definitely guided a lot of my decisions in terms of where I want to live, the kind of environment I want to be in, and also the kind of opportunities and risks I'm willing to take. And it's definitely put me on a different path than I probably thought I'd be on 10 years ago. Sure. It's not something that I had really thought much about because I don't share those identities, but I just want to thank you for for talking about that and being open to talking about that with me. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's something I don't get to talk about nearly as often as I would like to. Is there anything else that you would want to add about that before we move on to the research side of things? I think I just want to add that I'm really encouraged to see just the strides that have been made since I started graduate school. I know the conference I usually attend has gone from really kind of acknowledging women to having gender neutral bathrooms assigned in all of their conferences, starting to put pronouns on name tags. And this is really shocking to see in just under 10 years. So I'm really excited to see where this all goes in the future. Yeah, definitely. This is my fourth year. And in that time, people have become much more cognizant of adding their their pronouns and trying to make it an environment that's welcoming to everyone. Whether or not we're completely succeeding is, you know, kind of iffy, but we're working on it. It's all baby steps. Yes, for sure. So let's take a shift back to the research side of things. Your research is looking at chemicals in wastewater and surface waters, but that doesn't really seem like a topic that people are typically exposed to maybe even in a chemistry class. So how did you become interested in this particular research? When I was wrapping up my PhD, which was in renewable fuels and biofuels, I knew that I really wanted to get back to what kind of drove me into science originally, which was being out in the woods, poking around in the dirt and asking why things are the way they are. And so when I was applying to postdocs, And applying to jobs after my PhD, I was really looking for a chance to make the shift into environmental chemistry. And I was especially interested at doing a postdoc at a primarily undergraduate institution. I knew by then that was where I wanted to end up. And so this one came up working with Dr. David Griffith at Willamette University, looking at estrogens and wastewater. And it was just immediately like, this is it, kind of a light bulb moment. And then getting into the community, the water community, the water chemistry community, I've really enjoyed every person I've met. I found it really welcoming and inviting. And so I knew I didn't want to leave. It's it's fun. I get out, I get dirty, but I also get to do some really cool chemistry. Awesome. Yeah, it's so nice to uh, juxtapose the inside computer work with a little bit of outside, getting your hands dirty, getting some fresh air doing some research. So let's just start by defining a couple terms. So what is wastewater? So wastewater is a general term for any water that's going through processes to remove contaminants. Generally, when we talk about wastewater, we're talking about municipal wastewater, which is mostly going to be treated sewage, as well as some storm runoff. But there's also hospital wastewater, 
manufacturing wastewater. So specifically, my research looks at that municipal wastewater. In other words, what the average person is flushing down the drain and is ending up out in the environment. Okay. What are you finding in this wastewater? My research specifically is looking at anticoagulant rodenticides. In other words, pretty much rat poisons. But if you can imagine pretty much anything, it ends up in our wastewater. Other people are looking at pharmaceuticals. Other people are looking at hormones. There are some people just kind of looking at what all is in there. I wanted to focus on the rodenticides because of some of the specific hazards they introduce, as well as it's not something that's been thoroughly investigated yet. Well, it sounds like a perfect storm of research questions then. So what are some of the risks of having these rodenticides in our waters? So these anticoagulant rodenticides work by preventing blood clotting, and they're very widely commercially available. Because they're widely commercially available, they are pretty shelf-stable. And so that has implications in the environment where if they're shelf-stable, that means they're not breaking down very much with temperature fluctuations, with exposure to sunlight, with a lot of water. And so even though we might have a small amount that gets from our wastewater treatment plant out into the environment, it has a cumulative effect. And it's also been shown in animals that it doesn't break down a lot. So if it doesn't kill the animal, that they can keep building it up in their system over time. They don't flush it out of their systems very quickly. Okay. So if we have these rodents, these rats running around that are building up these rodenticides in their system, what are some of the risks of having all of these chemicals in these animals that I think will eventually die? either through poisoning or natural means. (laughs) Yeah, they will eventually die. The two biggest problems with anticoagulant rodenticides, outside of water, so this is a little bit pre-water, the one is that they are put into bait, so they're really, really attractive, which means that they end up being really attractive to our household pets and occasionally even children. And so there's a lot of inadvertent primary poisoning that can happen that way. With the anticoagulants, they can be treated, but they can't act so fast that treatment is almost impossible. The other way that these are really getting in the environment is that rodents don't immediately die when they eat these rodenticides, typically. Their internal organs essentially start breaking down, but because it's all internal, they don't look sick. And as far as predators are concerned, they pretty much act like perfect prey animals. They're slow to react. They're not really good at hiding. They're generally not as reactive and defensive as they typically would be. And so what happens a lot is that other animals will eat these rodents in addition to things that eat rodenticides that shouldn't. And so even if this animal has a lethal dose, it'll take long enough to die that it can look really, really attractive to a predator. So what are some of the predators that might be eating these these rats or these other animals that are getting into the, the anticoagulant rodenticides? Probably the biggest one as far as what people are interested in right now is raptors. So birds of prey, basically, hawks, owls, eagles. The other ones that can get into them, any sort of weasel. Weasels really like to eat rodents. And actually, the black-footed ferrets 
part of their decline in the up to the 1980s was due to rodenticides. Even things though like mountain lions, bears, bobcats, things that are so big you wouldn't think it would matter, they can ingest enough that it does actually affect their bodies. Oh wow. So are you seeing this kind of climbing up the food chain after those second animals, those predator animals are eating the initial animal that ingested the rodenticides or does it kind of stop there? This is one area where there's not a lot of investigation yet. And I say this as a chemist, there may be biology that I haven't run into yet. Let me just caveat that. But there's a lot of evidence that these are accumulating in bodies. Looking at owls in the Pacific Northwest, almost all of them have some level of rodenticides in their bodies, regardless of what killed them. There was in, I believe, late 2018, maybe early 2019, a puma that was found dead in a park in California. Very young, healthy male. And they found large levels of rodenticides in his body. And so it does look like it accumulates. And that goes back to the problem of how they don't break down very much. And so they're able to bioaccumulate like that. So I think before we get more into the research that you conduct and a little bit more into what we were just talking about, let's take a quick break. Hello, everyone, and happy Wednesday, or whatever day you're listening to it. I hope you're having a good Wednesday or not Wednesday. Anyway... I am happy to have you here listening to Hooked on Science. I am always thrilled to have new or continuing listeners to the podcast. If you notice, my audio isn't as crisp as it is right now or in the intro or in the fun fact, and that's because I did a dumb thing. I accidentally deleted my audio file, so when I record online with a guest, it records their online file and my online file. But I usually record externally as well on my microphone at home, so it's a little bit crisper. However, I was just... I was just not thinking and I deleted it. So, we thankfully have backup audio, that internet audio, but it might sound a little bit different than it usually does. Bear with me. As always, I like to mention that Hooked on Science is a PhD project of mine, and the purpose is to determine if podcasting is a good way to disseminate scientific research to people who are maybe not in the sciences or in other scientific disciplines. Just in general, see if it's a good way to get scientific information out to people and to see who we're reaching. And with that, I will be putting out a survey at some point. I was going to do it this fall. It looks like it will probably be this winter, January-ish. Instead, my schedule's gotten kind of crazy, and I need a little bit more time to put the questions together so that I can really ask what I want to ask. And when I do, I hope you will all answer it, even if you've only listened to one episode. It's still very helpful to learn who's listening and why you're listening, so I will keep you updated as to when that will be out. As always, I am looking for guests to participate as co-hosts. I have the next couple episodes lined up, which is exciting. Sometimes I'm not quite as on top of it as maybe I should be. The last time I recorded was, I think, July 24th or 25th, somewhere in there. So it's been a while, but I'm going to have a bunch of recording sessions coming up. So if you have anyone or if you yourself would like to participate as a guest co-host, please let me know. 
you can either send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com and I can send you some information about participating as well as a form to fill out. Or if you're ready to jump right in, that form can also be found on the Facebook page. It should be pinned to the top. You can find the Facebook page by searching at hookedonsciencepod on Facebook. And while we're talking about social media, you can follow the podcast on Facebook, as I just mentioned, at Hooked on Science Pod, on Instagram, at Hooked on Science Pod, or on Twitter, at Hooked on Science. I post any relevant news, any updates that past co-hosts may have, and when we have any new episodes out. So please follow those. Please subscribe on whatever you're listening to. Leave me a review on iTunes. And with that, Hooked on Science comes out every two weeks on Wednesdays, usually at 9 a.m. Central Time. I'm taking classes again for the first time in about two years, so I'm still trying to juggle what a full research and full course schedule looks like, but I'm going to try to keep to that every other Wednesday, 9 a.m. schedule. So that means the next episode will be out on September 30th. Have a great rest of your week. We are back from our short break, and it's time to talk about research. So, Carolyn, what is the overall objective of your research? So, the overall objective of my research is really in two parts. The first is quantifying and exploring the fates of anticoagulant rodenticides in wastewater and surface water. And the other half is working towards developing non-invasive monitoring methods for non-target species. Before the break, we defined what wastewater is, but we didn't talk about what surface water is. So what is surface water and what is the difference between surface and wastewater? Surface water is any water that's on the surface. So it's going to be lakes, rivers, ponds, creeks, things like that. And it's different from wastewater in that this is natural water. If we have surface water that is influenced by wastewater, we typically call it wastewater impacted surface water. Most surface water, though is impacted by wastewater. Sure, that makes sense. So how do you determine that a certain waterway is at risk of being wastewater impacted surface water or of having these anticoagulant rodenticides in it? So the way we determine that surface water could be impacted by wastewater is to talk to people at the wastewater treatment plants and find out where they're discharging. And so typically they're going to release their wastewater. They're going to discharge it after all the treatments. So this is not raw sewage. This is treated wastewater. They're typically discharging it somewhere in a body of water and ideally some sort of water that's moving away so that you get a dilution effect. Pretty much anywhere you have a municipal water system, you're going to have wastewater and wastewater impacted surface water nearby. So is it typical to measure levels of these rodenticides or other chemicals in the water before it's released from the you know municipal treatment facility and into the surface waters? Yes, pretty much 100% of wastewater treatment plants that have been surveyed for rodenticides come up with at least one of the big seven anticoagulant rodenticides. And so you mentioned that these don't break down very easily. Are there processes that these treatment facilities use to help break them down? Or is the problem that they can't really be broken down and that they're released into the environment anyway? So the evidence suggests that wastewater treatment plants are breaking at least some down. There's such a variety in wastewater treatment plant design, though, that it's hard to say exactly 
how much an individual wastewater treatment plant can remove. And looking at the literature, it varies from 0% removal, meaning that they're not removed at all, to 100% removal, which it's in line with other pharmaceuticals and hormones, which have similar chemical properties. So this isn't surprising, but it's definitely worrying because this does mean that most wastewater treatment plants are probably releasing some of these anticoagulant rodenticides into surface water. So is there a certain level in the water that would make you especially worried about some of the non-target species you mentioned before the break, or is it just presence alone that's concerning? Right now, I'm mostly concerned with presence alone. It's hard to say because right now we're working on certain assumptions about anticoagulant rodenticides if the, a certain level is problematic or not. And actually, right now, we're going through a bit of a shakeup in the knowledge behind this because there was just a paper published that showed that fish in lakes were dying from anticoagulant rodenticides. So that suggests that maybe these assumptions that the amount we're releasing isn't problematic are wrong, and we actually are releasing problematic amounts of anticoagulant rodenticides. If you are designing an experiment around measuring these anticoagulant rodenticides in the water, how, how do you go about doing that? How do you take the water samples? How often do you have to take them in order to get a good idea of what's happening? So ideally, we would take them more often. This is a downside to being at a primarily undergraduate institution is we're very, the research is very undergraduate driven, which a downside to that is we can't collect as many samples as possible. But right now what we're doing is we're going out and we're sampling surface water that's near the school. So we're sampling from the Allegheny River and we are sampling usually about half a liter at a time. And right now all we're doing is it's a nice shallow river. So we may wait out a couple feet and take a nice big container wait for the water to settle a bit and collect our water that way. It's one thing that's really nice is we get out, we get dirty, but we don't need a lot of expensive equipment to sample it. We pretty much just need a nice glass jar. Nice. That sounds like a, a nice low cost experiment. <laughs> well, at least on that front end, I'm sure the other equipment is, uh, you know, more expensive. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And with the wastewater, we actually go to the wastewater treatment plants. We haven't implemented this part yet, but we'll go to the wastewater treatment plants. And what's nice there is that they are constantly sampling for their own chemical analysis. And so it's fairly easy to get a representative sample of the wastewater. And especially we can get it pretty much right before it goes into the river. I never thought I would enjoy going to wastewater treatment plants. And yet here I am. Here you are. How are you measuring the levels of these rodenticides in the water? I'm guessing you're a chemist. There's some chemical tests to do that. Yeah, this is where the analytical chemistry side of things comes in. So what we do is we do solid phase extraction so that we're targeting chemicals with similar chemistry to the anticoagulant rodenticides with the goal of capturing them. And then we subject it to a very, very targeted analysis method uh, HPLC MSMS, high performance liquid chromatography coupled to tandem mass spectrometry. And so that looks specifically for just the rodenticides and it lets us ignore everything else that's still being extracted. 
but we can just look at our rodenticides and we can actually get some decent quantification out of this technique. So you're in a temperate region, you're in New York, they have winter, we have winter here in Minnesota. Do you see any seasonal differences if you were to sample just the surface waters for these ACRs? That's a really good question and there's not research on it right now. So this is part of the quantification side of things. Based on other compounds in wastewater, we actually would expect them to increase in the winter. And this is where this all gets a little bit horrifying. So most of, in temperate regions, most of the surface water, especially things like creeks and rivers, will become almost majority wastewater in the winter a lot of times because it freezes and you don't have quite as much water flow. And so we expect to see the concentrations increase in the winter and decrease in the summer as we get more rain and more actual water flowing. Very interesting. So do you think that those non-target species would be more affected in the winter than in the summer or not so much since some of them aren't even out and about during the winter? It's hard to say, especially since a lot of the owls we're looking at don't migrate. One thing that complicates it is that raptor's diet tends to change between winter and summer, but it does tend to move towards being a little more, bit more rodent heavy in the winter. And I would expect to actually see the exposure going up because food is scarcer. And so those bait houses are going to look all that much more attractive to rodents. But again, this is uncharted territory. Right now, this is all a little bit of those uh, scientific guesses. Well, it's always good to have a starting point and have lots of questions to answer. <laughs> what are some ways that people can reduce the amount of chemicals or anticoagulant rodenticides in our waste and surface waters. Is there a better way to deal with these substances? Absolutely. The biggest thing is decreasing the use of anticoagulant rodenticides. And that goes into everything with integrated pest management. And so it's reducing access to attractive things to rodents, essentially taking non-chemical methods in addition to, but with reduced use of anticoagulant rodenticides. So the fewer people can use, especially since these are commercially available, the less that's getting out into the environment. I'm sure it's a very attractive option, especially if people want zero pest tolerance. And we've talked about IPM on the podcast before on an insect level. As we start to come to the end of our conversation today, do you have maybe a couple takeaway points that you would want people to take from our conversation today? I think the two biggest takeaways that I would like is that, again, this is undergraduate-driven research, and I want people to not underestimate the amount of research and the quality of research they can do. And hopefully in a couple of years, it'll really show in my research and show from my lab. But the other thing is just that we do have a huge impact on the environment, and we take a lot of things for granted. So just reducing our impact, even in little ways, we keep seeing it in the wastewater chemistry. It does have huge impacts. Well, it is good to know that individuals can take steps and help maybe mitigate this problem a little bit. And Carolyn, I know that your lab is just starting up, but if people want to learn more about your research, is there anywhere they can go to find out more information? There is. My website is cphutchinson.com. 
www.thepodcastpodcast.com. All right. Well, that is easy enough. And I will link that in our social media posts if anyone is interested in checking that out. So, Carolyn, thank you again so much for joining me today. And I look forward to hearing more about your research. Good luck with your semester and research. Thank you. And thank you again for this opportunity. This has been fantastic. Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode. Today's fun fact comes from Christopher. Thank you, Christopher, for sending it in. Did you know that purple is not actually in the rainbow? If you think about the Roy G. Biv acronym, the V stands for violet, which is apparently not the same thing as purple. There is not actually a purple wavelength of light, and it requires a mixture of red and blue wavelengths in order for us to see that purple color. And what this means is that it's a non-spectral color, and it is the only non-spectral color that humans can see. For one, I'm very glad that we can see purple. It's my favorite color, so next time you see purple, you can think of this fun fact. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have a fun fact, and I am looking for fun facts all the time, I don't have any lined up for the next couple episodes, so if you have one, please send it to me. You can email me at hookdownsciencepod at gmail.com, or you can DM me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, whatever works for you. So please send me your fun facts and I will see you in two weeks on September 30th.